0: So, I thought I'd um, just start by saying kind of what, what we are in at the moment. So, you might not be aware of that. I, w- I kind of had, it slipped my mind yesterday. We are in the Urban Retreat at the moment. It started yesterday. So, um, when I came in on Thursday and I saw this really beautiful shrine, and I was kind of like quite kind of, oh, that's fantastic, it's really beautiful. And then I came in the shrine room yesterday. And I saw people downstairs kind of having some food and stuff. Then they came in the shrine room yesterday and I noticed that it's been added to. And I was really pleased to see that. I don't know who's done it. I'm not too sure whether it might be Mahabodi or Janet or whoever. But it's worth having a bit of a look because um, you kind of get a sense that as we're standing here, there are various people in various centres all around the world. ...that are doing the Urban Retreat... ...so um, all over England... ...Mexico City, New York... ...Moscow, Berlin... ...on and on and on and on... ...just have a bit of a look... ...so that's great... ...I'm very pleased that body decided... ...to step in and lead the Urban Retreat as well... ...yeah... ...so what I'm going to be talking about myself today... ...is... Um, ...I was thinking this is a bit of a grand title... But I've called it Awakening in the Sangha. That's the title of my talk. And I thought how I would approach the title is by um, kind of bringing us from Buddha Day through Dharma Day into Sangha Day. So say a little bit about Buddha Day, what it represents, a little bit about Dharma Day and what it represents, and how that relates to Sangha Day. So... On Buddha Day, we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment. That is what we celebrate. We celebrate the awakened state, um, if you can call it a state. I don't know. Um, and I was, I was thinking. Well, in a way, probably we're a bit more familiar with the unenlightened state, the unawakened state. So I'm going to start and say a little bit about what that is, and then I'm going to say a little bit about um, give us some kind of an idea. Of what the awakened state might be like. So we could all probably say quite a lot about the unenlightened state. But I'll kind of give you a few ideas of what it's like. So it's a contracted state. Um, It's a state that is generally talked about in terms of... It's a state where we can experience craving. We can experience aversion. Um, It's a state of dukkha of unsatisfactoriness, of suffering. It's a state of identification with self um, and a solidification and reification of self and other. I'm not going to explain what that means. And, and it's this kind of sense of like, well, this is what the conditioned mind is like. The conditioned mind separates into self and other and kind of causes us quite a lot of problems, really. Um, and it's also, a, it's a state of ignorance. So it's a state that is ignoring the facts about life. Um, or it, it kind of distracts us from the facts of life. Um, which again, is fair enough, really. Some of the facts of life are difficult. Um, so, but the, the kind of, the unenlightened mind has a strategy to try to work out the difficulties that doesn't particularly work. It probably causes us more suffering, really. Um, it mentally proliferates, it builds up stories, and it sometimes sees things the wrong way. So so based on our interpretation of what's happening, it kind of, it misinterprets, the condition of mind misinterprets what's going on. Um, yes, yeah, so, so it interprets things in the wrong way. On the positive side, so I'll get to the positive bit, even though we are in kind of this, this conditioned state of mind, we can still do things like practice ethics. We can still clarify what the Dharma is saying. We can still practice meditation. We can still get into dhyana. So actually, it's not all bad news, really. Uh, and actually things like getting into dhyana or higher states of consciousness do allow, do allow that sense of self to kind of soften It's not the only thing. I suppose you could also say generosity allows that sense of self to soften. So there are various things that we can do which allow the sense of self to become a bit more transparent, a bit kind of thinner, really. Um, So that's the unenlightened state of mind. So what about the awakened state of mind? What is that like? Well... (laughs) <laughs> to a certain extent, who knows? <laughs> um, but I think we, we can have we can have a bit of a, of a some kind of glimpse about it. I was thinking it's like in the early Buddhist tradition, it's talked about a lot in the sense of what's not there. So what is not there is craving and aversion. What is not there are the various kind of um, negative emotions. They have been they've they've gone. Then they're, they're there no more. Um, and also, it's it's kind of like, well, what also, whatever I say within this section, kind of, um, well, because I'm talking in kind of words and concepts, it's not really going to get to what it is about, really. It's just somehow to give some kind of pointer towards what it might be like. So you've got to kind of bear that in mind. So when I'm saying words, it's not like, oh, yeah, I understand what that means. You might have some sense of it. Um, but it 's probably not full awakening, I imagine, so the awakened state is ethical, so also I suppose like we, like I say, we can also be ethical from where we are, but the awakened state is naturally ethical um, it is a state of openness of spaciousness, so I said the unenlightened state is contracted, the awakened state is spacious. Um, It's also described as luminous. So the mind of someone who is awakened is luminous, is transparent, is clear, is lucid. And also, the fundamental thing that has been seen through is that self and other have been seen through. So there is no sense of self and other. Um, Well, from from the perspective of being awakened... That has been seen through. So what that means is that everything that comes out of, well, that happening, so the various kind of cravings and aversions, as I said before, are not operating anymore. And I imagine it's also a state of being very present to kind of what is going on with a heart which is very responsive to kind of what is going on, a very loving, a very compassionate. Well, in, in a way, all of the emotions of the Brahma Viharas taken to their fullest are what an enlightened being, the emotions of an enlightened being. So we can practice those practices and we can move towards what it might be like to be awakened. And the other thing that I was thinking is like, um, for some reason recently. Uh, I, was on, I was on retreat at Vajloka and the figure that kind of started to come in a little bit more was the figure of Green Tara. And I know from reading and various things that they say that Green Tara's compassion is very quick to act. And my sense of that was more like, actually, it's even faster than that. It is immediate. And the reason why I think it is immediate is because if there is no sense of self and other if there is no sense of kind of overthinking things, it's kind of like whatever happens, there is just a natural response to that. So even as simple as things like somebody drops a cup and you're just there to pick it up. Somebody collapses on the street and you're there with that person. Um, doing whatever needs to happen, you don't, you don't have to think about that. It, you just allow, well you don't even allow, your body naturally responds to, to the situation. So that is um, what the Awakened State, I imagine, is like. And that is what we're celebrating at Buddha Day. We're celebrating that we all have that potential to awaken. Uh, We all have the potential to be more ethical. We all have the potential to meditate. We all have the potential to friendship. But we also all have the potential to awaken. So that is Buddha Day Festival, and then we come to Dharma Day Festival and um, the story that tends to go with Dharma Day Festival, well, generally, if you're following the life story of the Buddha, is the Buddha gains enlightenment and then he, he looks out kind of over the world. And, well, at first he's, he's disinclined to teach, that's what we're told, because, I suppose, because what he's experienced is so... Um, well, so, whatever, it is kind of like (laughs) hard to communicate, with one thing, that he wonders whether he can teach it. He wonders whether he can pass that on. Um, And we're told, there are a few things that happen in that little bit of the story, but we're also told that he has this vision. So he has this vision of lotuses, this pool of lotuses. And these lotuses are in different stages of growth. So some of them are still in the mud. Some of them are beginning to grow up through the water. Some of them are just, maybe just their tip is kind of like just emerging from the water. Some of them have grown um, out of the water, maybe as a bud. And the, the, um, what what is said about this is what the Buddha realises is that uh, there are some people with but little dust in their eyes. So there are some people that, that, in a way, probably, with a little bit of teaching, might be able to understand what the Buddha understands. The Buddha then surveys, um, again, kind of, you could say, psychically surveys the kind of beings. And he, he wants to go back to his two previous teachers and he wants to see whether he, he can teach them. And he realises that both of his previous teachers have died. So obviously he can't teach them, can I? So he, the next, the next lot of people that he thinks about are the five ascetics that he's been practising with. And so that's what he does. He goes to see the five ascetics. And we don't really know what happens, for sure. We know that, that they're, uh, again, disinclined to welcome the Buddha, even. Um, but because of how he is, they kind of like they can't but welcome him, really. They have to kind of like get up and make a seat ready for him and welcome him and all the rest of it. And then I imagine that they begin to dialogue. Maybe they meditate together. We don't really know kind of what happens. But there's a kind of crucial point in that meeting. And what happens is that the Buddha is able to communicate his enlightened experience. And you get this great exclamation. Uh, The Buddha says, Kandanya knows, Kandanya knows. So the awakened state is now... So there's not just one person anymore that's awakened, there are now two. So this is the beginning of the awakened Sangha. And actually, if you read the Pali Canon... um, it kind of spreads quite quickly, really. So maybe the more people that, that are awakened, maybe, in a way, that spread just generally happens quicker. I don't know. So that is Buddha Day, uh, Dharma Day and Sangha Day. Yeah, so, so what I want to do next is I want to kind of leave that story to one side. And I want to say a little bit. I'm kind of looking at the time and thinking, oh, my God. Um... I want to say a little bit about uh, another sutta called the Kula Gosinga Sutta. So some of you might might uh, remember this story. So it's the story of the Buddha and, well, in a way, it's, it's an ideal sangha. It's, it's, um, it's an awakened sangha. So it's the story of the Buddha, um, Aniruddha, Nandia, and Kimbala. So some of you might recognise what is coming next. And the main part of the sutta is, is to do with a dialogue between the Buddha and Aniruddha. So I'll say a little bit about what happens. Well, actually, I'll say a little bit first about what do we know about these three disciples of the Buddha. So what we know, well, I've just told you one thing, that they're disciples of the Buddha, so they're three monks. They're living together. They are living on arms. Um, And we also find out within the story that they're living mainly in silence, so um, f- throughout the seven days of the week, they're generally in silence, except for one night where they talk the Dharma. So it's quite a thing, really. Um, it, kind of sometimes, you could, it puts our practice in a bit of relief when you kind of hear that. But I suppose the thing to draw out of that is, is the importance of lifestyle. Um, so Subutis talks about that, this in some of his papers. So in a way, no matter where we are, we need to consider... Um, what is the best lifestyle for us to practice the Dharma? Um, and I suppose the other thing that it draws out for me is the importance of retreats, actually. So in a way, they're probably the closest we'd get to living in those kind of conditions for us is probably being on retreat. It's kind of, that is the closest we, we get. Um, and I, as a, well, I think I've said this anyway, I'm going to jump forward in the story and I'm going to tell you the end, kind of. So at the end, you find out that these three beings are awakened. So I'm, te- I'm telling you that not to spoil the end of the story, but um, just to let you know that this whole dialogue, everything that happens that I'm talking about is between four awakened beings. So this is how four awakened beings act. This is how four awakened beings speak. So the Buddha says, <coughs> "Oh no, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm not going to tell the whole story. Well, to be honest, I won't. Might not be telling very much of it. But um, I'm just going to draw out a few, a few little things from from the story. So there's a sense that so we know that the Buddha goes to meet the um, these three disciples, and they come and greet the Buddha. One takes his outer robe. One takes his bowl." one sets out a seat, and one puts down water for washing his feet. So in the same way as maybe if one of our teachers was to um, come to our house, maybe there was three of us practising together, maybe we'd take the coat, maybe it was snowing, we'd take the coat, we'd put them in front of the fire, we'd give them a cup of tea, uh, we'd, help, we'd get them sort of settled really. And then they sit down to one side, um, well in a way they just wait really it's their teacher, that's the kind of like the let him take the initiative in this conversation and the buddha says i hope you are i hope you are, are uh, sorry i hope you are all keeping well aniruddha i hope you are comfortable i hope you are not tra- having trouble getting alms food i hope aniruddha that you are living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing Blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. So I really love this little dialogue. Um, And in a way, all of the dialogues are are like this in the Sutta. So, and what is worth bearing in mind is the first thing that the Buddha asks about is their well-being. He doesn't just go straight into talking about the Dharma. He wants to know whether they're comfortable. He wants to know whether they've got enough food. He wants to know whether they're well And it kind of makes me think about the first stage of the Metabhav well, not the first stage, the the four traditional phrases and the first phrase. So the first phrase, may I or may they be well. So it's this kind of sense that we're trying to um, get in contact with, that actually we just want to get a sense that, well, this person has a sense of well-being, really. That actually they're all right on that level. That's what we want for them. And the Buddha wants that for the Aniruddhas. The Anirudas is the three of them. Um, and then he, taught, he he's then is, is asking, well, how are they relating to each other? So, um, well, he asks whether they're living in Concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water and viewing each other with kindly eyes. And Aniruddha says to the Buddha, yeah, we are doing that. That is how we are living. Um, so, so all of this tells us something about how an awakened being would see things. So if there are two or more awakened beings, they see each other with mutual appreciation. Um, And I suppose it's like, well, when we appreciate something, one of the things that we have to do is we we have to notice, don't we? We have to just look, really. We have to just kind of get ourselves out of the way um, and just be there with whatever it is that we're appreciating, whether whether that is something beautiful or whether it's kind of one of our friends. And as I said before, this kind of whole... um, self-other kind of dichotomy has dropped away in the awakened state. So in a way, that kind of the mutual appreciation would flow very kind of very freely, really. It's not even something that you have to practice at that point. And they blend like milk and honey. Um, so, that, so they're not separate, they're of one mind and then the next phrase they view each other with kindly eyes and I think this is such a beautiful phrase actually I've kind of thought about this in relationship to the bhavana, and sometimes said this to people when I've taught that actually it's like at the end of the bhavana practice when you've radi- radiated out loving kindness and you're about to, to enter back into the world well this is the kind of intention that you need you need to be Kind of coming out of your me- your meditation with the sense that you will view other people with kindly eyes, and this is something that that we can um, train ourselves in, sort of doing that. Um. <laughs> so I'm just pausing a little bit because. This might be, have to be a talk in two halves. <laughs> this the, the second half won't be on Sangha Day. Um what shall I finish with um, Yeah actually there's this bit. So So the Buddha the Buddha asks the uh, the Anirudas how do you live thus? So he's not just kind of satisfied with um, already what they've said. He, he wants to know a few more details. And actually, as the Sutta goes on, I am going to read the Sutta in the puja, so at least you will get to hear more of the story. Um, he asks him, how, how do you live thus? And he says a few things, which I will not mention at the minute. But one of the things that he says is, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and I do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in bodder, venerable sir, but one in mind. So the thing that I will pick up from from this is this little bit where he talks about um, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? So this is... Maybe this is quite a good place to finish in a certain way because it is the kind of, it is the nub of the spiritual life. The nub of the spiritual life is to do with the tension between self and other. Yeah. Um, And the other thing to bear in mind is if at some point uh, you think you've got some kind of insight, reflect on this. So you think you've got some kind of insight. You think you've seen through self and other am I willing to put aside what I want to do and be, and uh, do what others want to do? That is the question to ask yourself and see whether uh, you're willing to do that or not. It's quite simple, really. So to finish... Um, yeah, well, to finish, it's kind of like, well, just imagine what the Sangha would be like. It's kind of like, in a way, the Sangha Day Festival. I've called this talk Awakening in the Sangha. So what that means is that as we sit here today, that is our potential. There is a potential for awakening in all of us. Yeah. So just imagine what that would be like. Even imagine what that would be like in the sense of, actually, even if we're just maybe not awakened, but at least a little bit more uh, loving. It has a massive impact. Um, so, th- so th- yeah, that is what I want to kind of finish with, really. That there is that there is this collective potential for awakening. That is awakening in the sangha. Thank you.